You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Well, we've been going through a series of Paul's trials uh, as he's been in Jerusalem. And as we see trial number three today, it really kind of takes us to a, a high courtroom drama type atmosphere. Uh, my wife and I are fans of the TV show Law and Order. And, uh, and, and really, it's kind of a law and order episode, uh, chapters 21 through 26. And, uh, you know, you've got everything, the, the process of Jewish law, the process of Roman law, the transportation of prisoners to courtrooms, the all rise, court is now in session, just kind of gets your blood going and pumping for, you know, what kind of drama is going to ensue as prosecution and defense begin their, their course, begin to unfold. And chapter 24 here is the high drama of Paul defending himself before the Roman governor, Felix. Now we remember in chapter 21, Paul had gone to Jerusalem bound in the spirit to go and preach the gospel to the Jews during the time of Pentecost. Paul, just being a nice guy and taking a vow, goes into the temple, and as he's in the temple, he's basically jumped on by an angry Jewish mob. He's arrested in violence with beatings. He's wrongly tried, nearly tortured, but saved from torture by the skin of his teeth then transported to a courtroom 70 miles away by an armed escort of 472 soldiers consisting of cavalrymen, spearmen, and marching infantry. Paul himself transported on a Roman horse. Once arriving in Caesarea, Paul is kept in custody for five days, waiting for his accusers to come. When the accusers do come, they bring with them a trained and professional lawyer named Tertullius. Paul stands before the Roman governor Felix here, first name Antonio, one of the characters in our drama. He's the judge. Antonio Felix once was a Roman slave. His brother, Paulos, became a personal friend of Caesar Nero, and as a favor to Paulos, Nero pardoned Felix and placed him as governor over Judea. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Felix was a master of cruelty and lust. He exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was a ruthless man. Ruling with a mafia-type mentality. Last week we studied of uh, the uh, high priest, um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, Ananias. And now Ananias, also a ruler, also ran with a mafia-like mentality, like a mob boss. Both the high priest Ananias and the Roman governor Felix were constantly taking bribes, giving bribes, whatever it took. Pay them off or knock them off. It doesn't matter. Just a ruthlessness in the rulers of Paul's day. And Paul here, as he stands before this, this court, this high court, as Paul stands before this governor, we see that this certain orator of the Jews in verse 1, the prosecutor named Tertullius comes. 
the district attorney to prosecute Paul. And in verse one, it says, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor concerning Paul. So the Jews bring with them this orator, Tertullus. We haven't read of him before. He had no part of Acts chapters 21 through 23 of the the Jerusalem trial, but they hire him at this point to perhaps add some weight to their charges against Paul. They really bring the big guns down for Paul's trial. And their first order of business as the prosecuting attorney is to basically curry some favor with the judge. And we see in verses 1 through 4, he does just that, this prosecutor, through flattery. It says this, when he was called upon, it's kind of like the first docket in the courtroom of the day, you know, all rise and we're here to listen to the charges of the, you know, the Asian Jews or the Jerusalem Jews against uh, Paul the Apostle. And so uh, the docket is called and Tertullius began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we've enjoyed great peace and prosperity uh, in you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity. It's being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, we beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. And so this first order of business for the prosecutor is basically to kiss some rear. It's called the Captatia Benevolentia, and it's really a standard procedure for the court. For the prosecutor, he wants to capture any benevolent disposition within the judge who's hearing the case. He's just going to flatter him. He's just going to pamper him. He's just going to make him feel really special. And so Tertullius's case here, it's long on flattery, but really short on honesty. Kind of, uh, if you've ever read Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's a man that tries to to kind of pamper up the queen and talk to the queen and really get her, you know, red face so that he could present his requester. And she just says, you know what? More matter and less art, you know? And here he has, Tertullius has a lot of art, not a whole lot of matter uh, at all. We're not going to see any real matter to his accusations against, against Paul. But we notice it wasn't just Tertullius here. It was Ananias as well in verse one. At this point, Ananias, the high priest, was 80 years old. In the last chapter, we read that Ananias had Paul uh, give his defense to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And Paul really just opens up just, you know, very honestly, very nicely and just said, men and brethren, chapter 23, verse 1, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And this 80-year-old high priest commands someone to strike Paul in the face. You remember last week that after Paul was slapped in the face, he looks at the high priest and he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And we kind of did a little study on, man, how a, a soft answer turns away wrath. And, uh, and, and I don't think the wrath had been turned away yet as this 80-year-old man makes a 70-mile journey to Caesarea to watch this guy fry. To hopefully watch this guy, Paul, hit the electric chair as he's there to, to charge. And, and to, so flattery, first of all, flattery comes uh, to Felix. But uh, we want to look at the, the charges here. 
or we want to actually look at the, the flattery, first of all. You know, he says, uh, seeing through you, we've enjoyed peace, prosperity. You've got great foresight. And we accept it. We accept your ruling all the time with thankfulness. And we just see this is not true at all. You know, what was the governing of Felix actually like? Well, first of all, it wasn't a time of peace. There was constant turmoil, constant unrest. And, and uh, Felix here constantly called to Rome for intervention from these uproars and uprisings that would occur because of his poor governing style. Historians say that Felix had a heavy yoke, there was no prosperity, and he had heavy taxes. No record is in Felix's government of beneficial reforms, but rather he was recalled to Rome because of all of these uprisings. And in two years from this time with Paul, as we read of today, in two years, he'll be removed from his authority. And so, so far, Tertullius is only blowing smoke, really not gaining much of a, of a foothold. And also the Jews didn't, uh, didn't receive this ruling of Felix everywhere and in every place. So just dishonesty in his opening statement. But, you know, uh, we just, we beg you to listen to us. And in verse five, the accusations against Paul begin that we found this man, Paul, to be a plague. So first of all, this guy is a plague or a pestilence. And what's the root word of pestilence? Pest. We have found Paul to be a pest. And as often in the accusations against the Christians, they can actually turn out to be a compliment to the Christian. In other words, Paul was infectious. Paul was infectious in his relationship with the Lord. You know, that's a good thing for a Christian to be a pestilence to the world. We want to destroy the world. We want to destroy the wickedness of the world. And we want to reign in the kingdom of God. But to the world, Paul was just seen as a dangerous nuisance. The second accusation is that uh, there in verse 5, he's a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. That's also a compliment. You might underline throughout the world. Now, Tertullius, man, he meant that as, you know, I mean, just look at what he's done. The whole world is just being turned upside down by this guy. But really, Paul thinks of it, and we can think of it as, man, the whole world is being touched by the gospel. That's influence. That's good influence. And finally, the accusation that he's a ringleader of the sect of the the Nazarenes. Paul was a leader. That's actually a compliment. He's a ringleader, but they meant it for bad in that he's a sect or he's Paul or he's part of a non-mainstream or non-orthodox cult. You know, he's just a little guy that's just going around and just troubling people all the time. And actually, verse six, you have that that last accusation that he even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Is this true? Do you guys remember what actually happened? Did the Jews seize Paul for doing something bad and stirring up dissension? And we just want to try him according to our law. Or what really happened? And they, they had no trial. They jumped on him in the middle of the temple and just started beating him. And praise God, Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander there in the temple, came and, and broke up the fight. And so lies, all lies is what the defense could stand up. And, and they could stand up and say, objection, your honor. None of this happened. And, and uh, 
And there in verse uh, 7, but the commander Lysias came by with great violence and took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we accused him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. And so the, the flattery and the lying, you know, um, his case isn't really going anywhere. And, uh, you know, he probably had the, um, the Kenny Rogers song in the back of his head that you got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And uh, he's just kind of like, okay, I can tell Felix that, <laughs> that you're done listening to me. And he was, because there it says in verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered. I want to just note this, that, you know, that all Felix did was just nod at Paul, just nodded to Paul. And it's just interesting. Some of you've been in court um, a time or two or, or three. <laughs> I've actually only been in a court uh, session one time and there was just some, and it was here in Prineville. It's like here in Prineville, a judge in the Crook County court circuit, man, that guy has got some authority. And it's just, you're just sitting there and you're, yes, your honor, no, your honor. I wasn't actually on trial in case you're wondering. Um, I forgot to <laughs> preface this all with that. <laughs> but, um, you know, we just see that the judge is a powerful person, you know, and he reigns supreme in his or her courtroom. You know, he, he has people stand when he stands and they, see, they sit when he's seated. He can throw people out. He has a hammer. You know, who else at their desk has a hammer? The judge does. You know, he silences people. When he says order, there's order. And we're going to see in just a little bit that there's another judge who in his courtroom reigns supreme and is a very powerful person, able to throw people out. People stand when he stands. They sit when he is seated. And when he says order, there's order. And so Paul begins with the, um, with the hopeful you know, appeal for benevolence, and yet his is a lot less full of flatter. He says, Inasmuch as I know that you've been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And so Paul just basically says, You know, uh, I'm not going to, you know, flatter you, but here's what I am going to say I know you've been a judge for a while. That's it. Yes, I know you've been a judge for a while, and so hopefully you'll uphold the, the standards of the law, uh, both Jewish law and Roman law. And, and he just begins by answering his accusers and answering his accusations. He cheerfully answers for himself. And in verse 11, he says, you know, I was there. I was at the scene of the crime in Jerusalem, and for 12 days I was there worshiping. And they found in me, you know, neither found in me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. You know, I was there. I was at the scene of the crime, but I didn't do the crime. For 12 days I was there, and I didn't cause any dissension, whether it was in the synagogue or a temple or the, or the city. Nothing like that. Nor can they prove the things of which they accuse me. But this I confess to you. And you can almost hear the, oh, he's going to confess. 
You know, he's going to confess to the crime. He's going to admit some high crime of treason or high crime of blasphemy or high crime of, you know, just disobedience to the law of Moses. And you can just almost hear the courtroom press tapping on their, you know, typewriters and trying to get the message out. He's going to confess. What's he going to confess to? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. There's a confession being made in the courtroom. And the confession was this. This I confess to you in verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law of the prophets. So my confession is this, and sorry, it's nothing you can, you can uh, uh, punish me for according to Roman law, but I worship with the way. Remember, the way is what Christians were called before they were called Christians because they followed Jesus who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that if anyone wanted to come to the Father, they had to come through Jesus. So yes, I admit and I confess that I worship according to the way and I worship with the way. In fact, I used to persecute the way. I used to hate the way. I used to drag women and men out of their homes by their hair and in chains. And now I'm a part of them. I'm a part of the way. But here's the way we worship. We worship the God of my fathers. We worship the same God that the Jews worship. And we believe all the things that are written in the law and the prophets. But here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus, the Nazarene, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it takes us back to Luke chapter 24, when Jesus, after he'd risen from the dead, he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. And you remember that he, he tried to open their eyes about himself. He was trying to hint that, hey, I'm alive. I'm right here. You know, how slow are you to, to understand the things written by the prophets? And their eyes were open and they saw that it was Jesus. And it says that Jesus opened up the scriptures and began to point throughout the law and the prophets all the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses. And that would be an incredible Bible study to be a part of. Sitting there with Jesus as he says, let's start with Moses. Here I am. Let's turn the page. Here I am too. Oh, and again, I'm right here as well. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, you're the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I know. That's what I've been trying to tell you. That's <laughs> what the prophets have been trying to tell you. And so Paul says, hey, really, I'm not in opposition to Judaism, but rather I bring the fulfillment of Judaism in Jesus Christ. I worship the same God that my father did. In fact, I worship or I, I believe the things that are written in the law and the prophets. In verse 15, I confess this as well, that I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And remember last week that the Pharisees themselves believed that there was a resurrection and so Paul says, you know, I just, I believe the same thing they believe, that there will be a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. And so Paul here, he, he always speaks of the resurrection. 
May that never get old to us as we work through the book of Acts. Remember, we've been putting little R's in the margin of our Bible every time we come across a mention of the resurrection because the resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. And so that's why Paul and Peter and Stephen and all those guys, they would constantly mention the resurrection. In the last chapter, Paul mentioned the resurrection. In this chapter, Paul's going to mention two different times uh, the resurrection. And, uh, and so, you know, it's important for us to constantly have the resurrection upon our lips and to use the resurrection, to wield it like a sword when we present the gospel. And so Paul here, he says, man, I have hope in the resurrection of my body. Isn't that interesting that as Christians, we are constantly remembering that there's a resurrection and Jesus rose from the dead. And yet we tend to just think it's going to be our spirit. Well, my spirit will, will, will rise. It will live forever. But we often forget those passages in the scripture that show us that there's going to be a resurrection of our body. So take care of yourselves because this is all you got for all eternity. No, that's, that's not true. Our body, when it's, ris- when it's raised from the dead, it will be transformed into glory. It will be transformed into a glorious body. But Abraham knew that God would resurrect the body when he killed, uh, was going to kill his son, Isaac. Hebrews 11 says, you know what? Abraham had faith that God was going to resurrect his son. Um, you know, Joseph wanted his bones taken back with his family when they left Egypt because he knew, man, these bones aren't going to stay here. These bones are going to rise from the dead. I want to be with my people when I rise from the dead. Elijah and Enoch, both of those guys, remember Enoch in Genesis, I believe it's chapter six, Uh, Right before the flood, he lived in the same days of Noah. It says Enoch walked with the Lord and was not. He's walking with the Lord. He had a heart to please the Lord. And the Lord basically raptured Enoch off of the earth before his wrath was poured out upon uh, a sinful creation through the flood. And yet Enoch's body was taken to heaven. Then you have Elijah who was taken up into heaven by a, a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. His body was taken up into heaven. And so are they going to be the only two in heaven with bodies and the rest of us are just bodiless souls? And, you know, how come they have that and I have this? In Job chapter 19, verse 25, it's a, it's a good song that Crystal Stewart uh, wrote, but she wrote this, for I, or she wrote this, Job wrote this, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job knew that though his body would be destroyed, it would you know, rot in the ground, that one day it would rise from the dead, that body would be risen, and with his flesh he would see God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's just this paramount chapter on the resurrection. And it comes down to Jesus rose from the dead. And we know that Jesus was a bodily resurrection, true? Able to be touched, able to eat fish, you know, able to be seen and handled, risen from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he was just the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, we see that the Lord will transform our lowly body. It will be our lowly body, but it will be transformed into a glorious body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body, Philippians tells us. According to the working by which he's able to subdue 
all things to himself. Our powerful God who himself rose from the dead will rise us from the dead and transform our body from lowly to glory. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 16 tell us when this is going to happen. When is this resurrection of our bodies going to happen? It'll take place during the rapture. And if you'll flip over there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. It says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we will be caught up with him in the air. We'll be raptured with him in the air. So immediately before the rapture, these bodies of all those saints that have gone before us will be risen. And then if we're still alive, we'll go as well. A bodily resurrection. And so Paul says, I have hope in this day. I have an awesome hope in the day when not just my spirit will be alive, which is great, but it's no different than what the pagans believed. The pagans believed, many of them, in an afterlife in the spiritual world. And you remember when Paul gave his defense to the Athenians or when he preached there on Mars Hill, that the Athenians laughed and mocked him when he spoke of the resurrection from the dead because he was speaking about a bodily resurrection. You know, even Plato spoke of a a spiritual resurrection. That was no new thing. But Paul spoke of a bodily resurrection, which was something altogether different and which caused a mocking among those philosophers there in Athens. And so Paul says, man, I have hope that my spirit will live and I have hope that my body will live as well. The first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. And one day this body will rise from the dead. But notice that that resurrection that Paul speaks of, it's of the just and the unjust. The just and the unjust. That word just speaks of innocent and holy and righteous. We know from the scriptures that the only way to be just is to be found in Christ Jesus. The only way to be holy is to have Jesus impute his holiness into your account. And he then takes your wickedness and your failings and your rebellion and your sinfulness and he imputes it into his account. As uh, is it 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, that uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how we become holy. We allow Jesus to take our sin and our shame and we receive upon ourselves his holiness and his purity and his perfection. And let me tell you this, if you're going to rise from the dead, which you will, being risen as a just person, it's the only way to go. You know, if I could be a salesman for a second, please let me beg with you to take this free gift of justification, that you could be looked upon by the righteous judge in heaven just as if you never 
sinned before. And just as if you never had inherited a sinful nature. It's a free gift. I'm really not even selling you anything. Just receive it. Receive the holiness. Receive the justification that's in Christ Jesus. But we note also, Paul tells us that the unjust will rise from the dead as well. And sometimes as Christians, we forget that little tidbit. Sometimes we forget that there will be a resurrection of the wicked as well. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Daniel prophesies that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Those who are dead and buried in the ground, they're going to wake up. And Daniel tells us some of them will wake up to everlasting life. Those are the just that wake up. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the unjust. How about you? Where are you at? When your body rises from the dead, will it, will you go to paradise? To be with Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you in everlasting life? Or when you rise from the dead, will you go to shame and everlasting contempt? Where the worm does not die, Jesus says, and the fire is not quenched. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sobering to think of bodily people going to hell, isn't it? Bodily for eternity. They'll taste death forever. John chapter 5 verse 28 tells us this. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil, the unjust to the resurrection of condemnation. You know, it's interesting to picture that day when those who sleep and are in the grave will awake. Now, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And that those who are saints who have gone before us right now, they're in paradise with Jesus. They're present with the Lord. But there will come a day when they will unite, be united with their bodies again. These bodies that have been transformed into glorious bodies, glorious uh, homes for our spirit to dwell once again. But it's an interesting thing to think of those, those bodies. We're just talking the body. The bodies that are in the grave will hear his voice. And when my dad passed away, it was a real hard thing to consider how to, to bury him. And I remember driving back from Bend. It was about 100 degrees. And uh, my red pickup was my dad's old vet pickup that I drive now. And the heater was stuck on high. My dad had just passed away, you know, we got to get back to uh, Lakeview to make the burial arrangements. And my mom and I are driving back in rocket. It's what we call my pickup, you know, and it was hot as a rocket that day. Heater cranked up on high. We pull into uh, the, uh, the, the uh, funeral home there. And I just remember sitting there and picking out an urn for my dad's ashes. And, you know, there's all these different urns. And my dad was a cowboy his whole life and a veterinarian and we come through the urns, and, and here are these carved mahogany cowboy boots. And, and that represents my dad. You know, that's a good, yeah, let, let's get those. And so my dad's ashes are placed in that, and we take it to the memorial service, and we've got them sitting up there. And, and then, you know, we take it to the mausoleum and Klamath Falls, and, and I remember just being like, what the? <laughs> and the mausoleum had nothing but marble walls. 
And so we placed those really expensive carved mahogany cowboy boots behind the marble and then <laughs> haven't seen them since. So just a little note, go cheap on the urn, okay? <laughs> but to be st- practical information here at Calvary Chapel of Kirk County. But... You know, in studying this and and really being reminded by a Spurgeon sermon this week that saints, it's a bodily resurrection. It won't be merely spiritual, which is incredible. But, you know, for us as physical beings, that just seems so it's going to be less if it's spiritual. That's not true. It's not going to be less. But don't fool yourself. You're going to have a body as well. And if your body down here can sense and taste and touch and feel, you can only imagine what your glorious body will feel, whether you're in everlasting life with Christ or in everlasting torment and punishment with Satan and his angels. And the whole story about my dad's urn was just to say, you know, those ashes, the God that created Adam from the from the dust of the earth will bring my dad's body back together. And though my dad had scars from cancer surgeries and bone marrow transplants and brain surgeries and IVs and, and you know, his body was a, a weak tent when my dad passed away 10 years ago this summer, the God of the universe is going to bring him back together into a glorious body that he will dwell in with Christ forever. And I'll tell you what, my dad was a two-time state champion wrestler in high school, and he uh, wrestled for Washington State University, and he was in shape his whole life. Six-pack, big old biceps, nothing like me, I'll tell you that. But to think of, you know, wow, it's going to be better than that even. And as Paul had hope in the resurrection from the dead, both of body and of spirit, so do we. So do we. And you'll either be risen as a just person, justified freely by God's grace and his free gift, or you'll be resurrected as a pitiful, self-righteous individual who will give their own defense before the judge of the universe, and you will be found wanting, and you will receive your just judgment. And as John says, as Jesus says, John records that those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation they will go. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both the soul and the what? And the body in hell. Fear this righteous judge who will destroy. If you are an unjust individual, if you've not been justified by Christ, fear the one who in his justice and with sorrow in his heart, he'll give the just judgment in sending an unjust individual to hell. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, we read of this judgment, and we're going to come to it uh, later on in the chapter. But in verse 16, Paul says, you know, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men, knowing that I have hope in the resurrection and that it will take place, knowing that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem, 
where Jesus's body once lay, but it's not there anymore. Therefore, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and all those uh, after him will follow, especially those who are in Christ. They'll be resurrected to eternal life in heaven. And knowing this, man, I just live to have a good conscience before the Lord. We saw that in chapter 23, verse 1. He's always strived to have a pure conscience before the Lord, knowing that in Christ Jesus, his blood cleanses us from a wicked conscience. We studied that last week. Before the Lord, Paul, Paul always strived to have a, a clear conscience. But not only was it just before God, it was also before man. Just before my brothers and before my sisters, I want to have a good conscience before you guys. You know, I want to know that we're keeping short accounts with each other and, and that we're right with each other. I want to have a good conscience about my interaction with Frank or my interaction with Justin or my interaction with, with you know, uh, Nick. You know, I just, every, I just want to make sure things are good. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus says, If you come to worship and you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And because I know there's going to be a resurrection, man, I always want to make sure, man, I'm right with my brothers. Because I know I'm going to be spending eternity with these guys. Man, I want to make sure down here on earth, man, we were good. We were good. There wasn't any sin that was unconfessed or, you know, unreconciled between us. And I was obedient to Jesus' command as we came to worship at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. And I came to sit down and I knew there was a brother or a sister here who'd offended, uh, who I'd offended. And, they, and I'd wronged them. And that they're sitting back there and they're just struggling worshiping because there I am. And I'm just like, yes, Lord. And they're back there. How can he worship after doing that to me? And the Lord says, man, if you know that someone's back there and, and you've offended them and there's, there's turmoil in their heart, just go back and get right with them. Be reconciled, then come back and worship. Keep short accounts with one another. And so maybe you're here today and your conscience convicts you. Maybe you've sinned against the Lord and you know you're not right with the Lord. And you know that if you were to be resurrected today and stand face to face before the Lord, that you would be found wanting, that your righteousness would be inadequate you know you've sinned against the Lord. You willingly and promptly went into that sin, said that to that individual, opened up a can of gossip amongst your friends, coveted that silver, that gold, that object, that home, that vehicle. You've been greedy for money and you just know that, man, it's just wrong before the Lord. But your conscience isn't clear. Today, you can have a clear conscience. You can come before the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world and you can let him cover you in his blood, the blood that he shed on the cross. Through faith, you can be covered in the blood and you can have your sins washed away and you can have a clean conscience. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? And if you're here today and you know, man, your conscience is convicting you that there's something that someone you've done to them, man, be reconciled to them. Verse 17, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. I, I came to, to bring gifts to my people, to the Jews. And they're accusing me of this dissension. Here's the dissension. I brought gifts to them. 
in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with the tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood there, stood here before the council. Unless it's for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. The resurrection again. It's bringing up again. You know, Paul wasn't as concerned about being let out of his chains as he was about Felix becoming a Christian. Let's bring up the resurrection again. Next week, we're going to study this beautiful passage in verse 25 as Paul reasons with Felix and his wife Drusilla about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And today we know there will be a judgment to come. There will be a day for the just. When they're resurrected from the dead, they will stand before the Lord and they will be judged according to what they've done in the body and they will receive rewards. And then they will take those rewards and they will throw them before the Lord and say, Lord, all the glory belongs to you. But for the unjust, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the dead will be resurrected, the small and the great those that had been buried in the sea, those that had been buried in the land, they will all be resurrected and they will stand before the great white throne judgment and books will be opened in this judgment. And there's this one book that really matters and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And anyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's Book of Life was cast into hell. Anyone who wasn't just, anyone who wasn't made justified, through faith by Christ Jesus, was cast into the lake of fire. Where are you at today? Do you have a clean conscience before the Lord? When you stand before him, do you know we're right? I'm right before God. Not because of what I've done, not because I'm a good person, but because of what he's done for me. We're going to close with, with more worship here, probably three songs or so. And during worship, we're going to have communion available. And as we search our hearts this morning to see if there be any wicked way in us, as the Lord shows you that wicked way, confess it before him. Lord, I see what you see and I repent of that. Help me to have victory over that thing. We're going to have the leaders come forward and be available up here for prayer. We're going to have the prayer team come forward and they're just going to be up here. And as you're taking communion, as you grab the cup and the bread and you sense that there's something in your, in your heart between the Lord that's, that's not right, I encourage you just to just confess that before the Lord. And if you'd like to come up for prayer and just confess that to a brother or a sister, that's available today for you as well. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're given instruction about communion. And we know that there was a lot of bickering and a lot of fighting in the Corinthian church. And it talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the bickering and the fighting. And then it talks about, and there are people that are just flippantly going up to the communion table and getting their cup and getting their bread and eating it because they're just hungry. And they've got all these offenses with people in the room. And we're told that they're, they're drinking judgment upon themselves. And there were many that were sick and there were many that were dying because of this flippant disregard for the body of Christ. And so as we're taking the bread and taking the cup, if there be anything that the Lord convicts you that, man, that person's in this room right now, I encourage you, go and get that person and pray with them and just repent and just ask for forgiveness and be reconciled.
and then take the, 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 the cup and the bread and partake. And if today you know, right now, you know in your heart that you are unjust, we're going to ask you not to come and grab communion. But the good news is that you can be found just today. Just receive what Christ did for you on the cross when he laid down his life and he paid the price for your sins. And once you've done that in your heart, just the best way that you know how, you can come on up and grab communion and just have your first communion today. And as you drink the blood, you just remember Jesus, not the blood, as you drink the cup, you just remember Jesus, this is a picture of your blood that you shed for me. And I receive what you did for me. And and Lord, now you're in me, Lord. I'm in you and you're in me. And just as close as we can get, Lord, I partake of Christ's sufferings. And Lord, I take the bread and I remember it's a picture of your broken flesh. And as I swallow that, Lord, Lord, I receive just that broken body that was broken upon the cross for my sins. And as you come up, man, feel free to, to go in a less populated place of the room or maybe go in the prayer room and just man, get real with the Lord, get right with the Lord. But you can come up and grab communion as, as you're ready, as you're right with the Lord, as your conscience is clean before the Lord.